Welcome to the Vanguard Bible Church podcast. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, visit www.vanguardbible.org or come worship with us on Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. at Freedom Middle School in Northwest Bakersfield. We hope you enjoy today's message. Once you're invited to go, you go. These were the words of Tom Ricketts, owner of the 2016 world champion Chicago Cubs, after he received an invitation from President Barack Obama over Twitter for his team to come visit the White House. President Obama, who is from Chicago, posted on Twitter this invitation shortly after they had won the World Series, and it simply said, it happened. Cubs win World Series. That's change even this Southsider can believe in. Uh, If you want to come to the White House before I leave, let me know. The invitation was well-timed as an olive branch because it was a it was sort of a well-timed olive branch because it was a divisive year for, the, for our country. There was a difficult, nasty presidential campaign that took place. There was uh, rioting in various, various cities against police forces. And, and so to see a South Sider, on the, a White Sox fan from the South Side of Chicago, reach out to the Chicago Cubs, who were on the North Side, and to invite them to come celebrate their World Series win was a big deal and something our nation needed to see. It was also the franchise's first World Series since the Theodore Roosevelt administration. When Ricketts had uh, asked, was asked by the media whether he considered turning down the invitation because of President Obama's baseball affections, Ricketts replied, when you get invited to the White House, you go. You know, there are some invitations you don't turn down in life. Today's scripture passage reminds us that there is one invitation everybody receives that no one should turn down. We're resuming our journey through the parables of Jesus today, in this series called Once Upon a Time. If you haven't done so already, I want to invite you to open up your copy of God's Word to Luke chapter 14 with me and to pull out your sermon notes or fire up your phone and uh, launch your Bible app, Luke chapter 14. And if you need to borrow a Bible, you don't have one, that's okay. We've got plenty we can loan you. Just raise your hand and one of our ushers will bring you one. We've been learning throughout this series that a parable is an earthly truth, I'm sorry, an earthly story packed with a heavenly truth. Jesus liked to tell parables in order to disguise truth from his enemies who were always looking to trap him, but to also illustrate or illuminate truth for those who were genuine seekers. We've also seen throughout this series that some of Jesus' stories are sobering dramas, while others are scary tragedies. Uh, They have some hard truths in them. They're difficult to hear. 
And if you've been uh, noticing like I have how tough Jesus talked throughout his teaching ministry, um, well, that's how Jesus taught. And it's a shame that it surprises us. It's surprised me. I've never really gone through this, his parables one by one like this before. And I'm actually, I've been surprised to see how blunt he is in his stories. I knew he was blunt in other places like sermons that he preached, but in his stories, being very blunt and delivering hard truth. Despite the hard truths that are in these parables, they do contain consequential truths that we need to know. And we should see Jesus' heart behind that, that he doesn't pull punches. He, he's upfront and honest about who he is, how he manages the world and the universe, and he's very honest about who we are. Today's parable is no different. It's another life or death story about who will actually be welcomed into heaven and who will not. And thus our big idea for today is this, the invitation to heaven is universal, but many who hear it consider it optional. The invitation to heaven is universal, but many who hear it consider it optional. That's what Jesus is going to show us today in this story we're going to look at. If we fully understand the wickedness that's in our own hearts, then it should not surprise us that people would try to force, negotiate, smooth talk, or try to change the rules on how to get into heaven. This is why, at least in part, Jesus told some of his kingdom parables. For example, we learned earlier in this series from the parable of the sower that the gospel seed is widely spread and it lands on four types of ground. The hard path, the rocky ground, the thorny soil, and fertile soil, all representing different people who hear the gospel message. And yet Jesus clearly explains in the parable of the sower that three out of four who hear the gospel reject it. Two out of the three that reject it look like they received it. And only the heart that bears fruit is the one that genuinely receives it. We also learned in the parable of the narrow door a couple of weeks ago that many will try to enter the kingdom of heaven, but few actually will. And Jesus told, told us in that story that many are going to think they're going to get there but we'll be surprised when they don't. And so these are just some of these sobering truths that Jesus has been giving us through these stories, uh, painted in high-definition color, trying to open our eyes and sort of debunk the myths that we create in the world about heaven and about him. Now, this parable that we're going to look at today, the parable of the great banquet, Jesus told this parable so that we would take his invitation to follow him seriously and so that those who don't would be without excuse when they turn him down. In Luke chapter 14, verse 1, we're told that Jesus was invited to a dinner at the house of a prominent Pharisee. You could see it there in your Bible. 
And as he went there, we're told in Luke 14, verse 1, he was being watched closely by his enemies because they wanted to get dirt on him. At one point in the evening, Jesus told a story to the guest called the parable of the wedding feast. It takes place in verses 7 through 11, and just as a refresher and to give you some context, we we studied that a couple of weeks ago. The story basically exposed how pridefully the guest at this dinner maneuvered and manipulated to try and get closest to the head couch to increase or improve their social status. Instead of taking the high seat, Jesus challenged the guests there to put on humility and take the lowest seat first and to let somebody else, like especially the host, invite them to move up to a more visible position in the room so that they were not promoting themselves. And so this dinner party is still going on here in Luke 14, and we rejoin the evening's festivities already in progress in verse 12 where Jesus turns his attention from the guests at the party to the host. Follow along with me as I read Luke 14, verses 12 to 14. And so he said to the man who had invited him, this is the man back up in verse 1 who owned the house and was throwing the dinner party, When you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed, because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Now, not only were the guests guilty of jockeying for social status at this dinner party, the host was also guilty of inviting only people that would increase his status as well. And so that's what Jesus is trying to address. Now, although serving the poor was important to Jesus, I don't think he's saying here that we're supposed to invite the poor every time we want to have some friends over for dinner. He's instead, the bigger picture issue he's trying to surface is he's challenging them and us to look at our motives for having people over to our home in the first place. The Lord wants us to serve others and to give to others without expecting anything back in return. And so that's what he's targeting here with the guest and the host at this dinner. Now let's continue reading as we enter into this next parable in Luke 14, verse 15. So when one of those who reclined at the table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But he said to him, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at that time... At the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field, and I must go out and see to it. Please have me excused. And another said, I've I've bought five yoke of oxen, and I 
I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I've, I've married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. So here's the first truth on your outline, the first of two major points that Jesus is making in this parable this morning, and that is, uh, number one, the gospel call is universally extended, but often personally rejected. The gospel call is universally extended, but often personally rejected. I cringe every time I read this gentleman's statement in verse 15. Allow me to uh, test my drama skills here to help you understand what's happening you might remember me talking about a couple weeks ago, dinner parties and banquets like this were set up in a U-shaped formation where the, the center couch where the host sat, the most important prominent people, sat in the bottom of the U, and then as the uh, couches extended out, they formed a U formation. So basically, the further away you got from the bottom of the U, the less important you were, or the less known you were to the host. Uh, you might also remember me mentioning that uh, uh, back then they didn't use tables, but instead they would recline on these couches on their left arm and eat with their right hand. And it was sort of a lounging, relaxing um, uh, atmosphere. Well, it says in the text in verse 15 that there's a gentleman sitting next to, laying next to Jesus, and this gentleman, he's either trying to propose a toast, trying to impress Jesus, presuming they'll all be in heaven, or all three. I, a contemporary rendering, I think, of what he says might be like this. Heaven's going to be great for all of us. Cheers! Or... or um, Blessed is everyone who's, who's going to be at the big party in heaven. Cheers. And he raises his wine glass and summons a servant to come over and top him off again. And I, 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 Every time I, I read that, I cringe because I think if I was there, I would have been like, do, 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 put your hand down. Shh, shh, don't bring attention to yourself. Oh, there you go. And Jesus is going to tell a story right at you. You just had to open your mouth, didn't you? You know, like if I was one of the disciples, I might have tried to spare him that. Oh. I'm going to step away. He's the one, Jesus, who raised his hand. He's the one that had the question. I knew where you were going all the time, the whole time. You know. So <laughs> I'm cringing because every time, and, and granted, I have the benefit, and we do too, we all have the benefit of all four Gospels, so we can see how Jesus interacted with people in various situations. And it's been my observation that most of the time somebody speaks up when Jesus is teaching, he puts a spotlight on them. <laughs> and that's why I'm thinking, don't say anything. Don't interrupt him. Not good. But he does. So Jesus, in verse 16, begins to tell another story. A man gave a great banquet. And notice it says, he invited many. It was common practice in Jewish culture 
for a host to send his servant out into the community with invitations to a celebration. Community members would then reply to the servant with either a yes or no on whether they were going to attend, similar to a modern-day RSVP. The servant then would go back to his master's home and give a head count, and the master would then begin to make preparations for the number of people who said they were coming. Sometimes the invitations were sent out in the morning because there was going to be a banquet that evening. Sometimes it was just the next day. But just like all of you do and we do and we have friends over or throw a Christmas party or something like that, you make plans for seating, decorations, food and drink and all those things based on who says they're coming. Well, notice it says in verse 17, say to those who had been invited... This is important because this is the second time the servant is going out. The guest had already said they were coming. That's an important background clue, okay? Dinner is ready, and it's now time for the banquet to begin. And, of course, they didn't have smartphones back then, so they couldn't send out a blast text message and, or post it on social media. Hey, the party's ready. Come on over. It just took various amounts of time to prepare the home. And so the cultural norm back then was phase one, servant goes out with invitations. Servant comes back with RSVPs. Phase two, master begins to plan based on the RSVPs. Phase three, servants go out and say, it's now time to come. Well, now look at verse 18. They all alike, one after another, begin to make excuses. Just imagine how you would feel if all your RSVPs didn't show up. After you had put a lot of time and money into preparing a party for them. Now, once you've identified that feeling, or maybe you had that feeling recently, multiply it by 10. Because in Jewish culture, the excuses that are listed in verses 18 to 20 would have been an appalling offense to the host who had gone to great lengths and great expense to prepare a great banquet. Now, there's a spiritual truth behind the story that I want to make sure I surface for you and highlight before we move on, and that is that the parable of the great banquet is a metaphor that paints a picture of how two groups of people responded to Jesus. The first group is the people of Israel. The master in the story is God. The servant or servants are the Old Testament prophets that God sent to the Israelites, inviting them to follow a forthcoming Messiah. And then when it says in the text in verse 17, come for everything is now ready, That is Jesus, that represents Jesus, who also was a prophet, 
saying, I'm here. It's time for you to receive me and believe in me. The time is now. Now, the second group that this parable is aimed at, and it's showing how they respond to Jesus, is modern-day unbelievers. Again, the servant is, it's Jesus. The invitation is the gospel message, and the great banquet is eternal life. And as you can see in the text, both the Jews and modern-day unbelievers make excuses for not accepting Jesus' message of repentance and faith for the forgiveness of their sins. Now, there are a multitude of reasons people reject the gospel message, but Jesus gives three common ones here in this story. This is letters A, B, and C in your outline. The first is the idol of materialism. The idol of materialism. An idol is anything the heart loves more than Jesus or instead of Jesus. Idols make us want to sin in order to get them or they make us want to fight in order to keep them. They steal the affection and worship that Jesus deserves. And in this case, the first invitee idolized his stuff. He says, I bought a field. Man, I got to go out and tend to it. Now, it was common in those days for someone who had acquired land to go and inspect the property. There's nothing wrong with that. But the offense was in the fact that this man preferred to look at his property instead of honoring the previous commitment he had made to the banquet. This man represents those who are unwilling to give up their love of money and material things in order to follow Jesus. One tragic example of how costly materialism can be comes from a professional wrestler who rose to world prominence near the end of the 19th century. His name was Yusuf Ismail. His vicious fighting style and being from Turkey earned him the nickname the Terrible Turk. He weighed six, excuse me, he was six foot two and he weighed 250 pounds, which is quite large for a man back in those days. And the Terrible Turk laid waste to every challenger he faced in the European wrestling circuit. And so after sort of getting bored over in Europe, he decided to come over to the United States to find some better competition. And so he and his manager organized a tour, and he came over to the United States, and that tour ended with a match against the American champion, a man named Evan Strangler Lewis. The Strangler got his name from his signature weapon, uh, wrapping his arm around the neck and pressing his bulging bicep into the Adam's apple of his opponent until he collapsed from a lack of oxygen. Now, I offered to demonstrate this. I asked a couple of our guys if I could demonstrate this for them, and for some reason, they, 
they turned me down and they weren't willing to do that. I'm, I'm assuming it was the size of my bicep that uh, caused them to do that. But um, when the strangler tried to use his famous stranglehold on the terrible Turk, it, was, it didn't work at all because the terrible Turk's neck was just too big. And so, with his best weapon neutralized, the terrible Turk was able to toss the strangler around the ring like a rag doll. And it also didn't help that the strangler only weighed 200 pounds. Well, as a result, the Terrible Turk won the world championship crown, and he also won a $5,000 purse, which was a lot of money back then. However, because he loved money and he didn't trust anybody with his money, he demanded his payment be exchanged for U.S. gold bars. The Turk then crammed his gold into a money belt and strapped it around his huge waist. He then boarded a steamship called the La Bourgogne and set sail across the Atlantic to return home with his riches. Well, tragically, on the morning of July 4th, 1898, the Burgoyne collided with a British ship off the coast of Nova Scotia. As the crew scrambled to load women and children into lifeboats, witnesses saw the Turk frantically trying to jump into a lifeboat, cutting the line. But when he was unsuccessful, he chose instead to jump into the water in hopes that he could swim to a lifeboat, or maybe one of the crew in a lifeboat that had already been launched would see him and row over to try and save him and pull him out of the water. But unfortunately and tragically, because of the weight of the gold around his belt, he sank like an anchor to the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean and was never seen again. Isn't it sad to see people go to their grave holding on to what they cannot keep when they could have had something better they could not lose. Materialism, the first excuse that Jesus sees people use for turning down his invitation. Here's letter B. The second excuse is the idol of work. The idol of work. This second gentleman says, I've bought five yoke of oxen. And I go to examine them. A yoke was a, uh, it had two meanings. It was actually a, a, a wood contraption that would connect two oxen so they could plow a row or pull a trailer together and it would help them stay close together instead of wandering off different directions. But a yoke also, that term was used to refer to a pair of oxen. Most farmers in the first century could only afford one or two pair of oxen. This particular farmer had five pairs, or ten oxen. This indicates he was quite wealthy. It also indicates he could afford hired hands to take care of his land and still attend the banquet. This man represents those who love their work, love what it can accomplish for them, 
or the identity their work gives them too much in order to follow Jesus. Some in this category may believe they can even work hard enough to earn their salvation, or they may not even think about eternal things at all because they're so consumed with what their work can do for them here on earth. So we have the idol of materialism, then the idol of work, and here's letter C, the idol of family. In verse 20, the third gentleman is newly married. He says, I've married, and therefore I cannot come. And this is this is not a ball and chain kind of you know, setup as far as marriage is concerned. He's, he's not saying, my wife won't let me go, or I've had to give up the single life. You know, he's not saying that at all. In fact, uh, the Old Testament law does contain some special accommodations for newlyweds to help them get off to a good start in their new life. Uh, for example, Jewish men were not required to enlist in the army during their first year of marriage according to Deuteronomy chapter 20 and chapter 24. However, backing out of a banquet this husband had already committed to because he was newly married was not a sufficient excuse. In addition, wives often were welcome to come to such banquets. Now, we're not told the rest of the details by Jesus, but... He's trying to make a point in the story. These are, again, fictional characters. He's trying to make the point that this man turned down the invitation because of a family member, his spouse. This man represents those who let their love of family prevent them from following Christ. Jesus says just a little further on down the page in verse 26, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Obviously, Jesus was speaking, he wasn't speaking literally here, but rather hyperbolically, meaning he was using exaggeration to make a point. Jesus in verse 26 is trying to say, your love for me should be so great that when compared to the love you have for your father, your mother, or your spouse, or your kids, it looks like you hate them. So this man idolized family. It reminds me of a story um, I don't think I've told before, and I haven't told in a long time, but it reminds me of a a season of my life back in college, um, when I had surrendered my life to Christ, I returned back to my hometown for summer break, and I felt led by the Lord to start a Bible study. Now, you have to keep in mind, my hometown was about two and a half to three hours away from college where I came to know Christ. So going back home was going back to my previous life where all my friends were unbelievers. And so... Uh, compelled by the Lord, I wanted to start a Bible study to try and share the gospel with them. And so I was able to round up a group of Catholic friends of mine that I knew in high school, and I wanted them to have the same relationship with Jesus that I now had. And so we set up a Bible study, and we were going to meet at a, a guy's house, and 
Uh, I picked out a simple workbook that would take them through the basics of the gospel. Well, after Bible study one evening, one of my high school friends pulled me aside in the foyer of the home to talk to me privately, and he said he had a question. His mother had just passed away a year or two earlier. And so he asked me, he says, he says Carrie, if, if what you're saying tonight is true, that the only way to heaven is through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ, then you're, aren't you saying that my mother is in hell? Because she never heard what, what we talked about tonight. She was just a good Catholic woman. I replied uh, gently, because I wanted to clarify, I didn't say it. The Lord said it in his word. Jesus said, I'm the way, truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And he says in Mark 1, chapter, sorry, Mark 1, I think it's verse 15, repent and believe in the gospel. Well, then my friend hit me with an even tougher question than the first. He says, well, Carrie, if my mother is in hell because she didn't have a personal relationship with Jesus, then I want to go there so I can be with her. Is it okay for me to do that? Now, keep in mind, I'm a new believer. I mean, I've only been saved a couple of months. I just started reading the Bible. I haven't been to seminary. I had not even been called into ministry yet. In fact, at that moment, I was thinking, I don't even consider ministry an option right now. That's not something I, I think I want to be hit with these kind of questions. So I paused and I prayed silently, dear Lord, how am I supposed to respond to this? Because I'm not ready for this. I haven't read enough of the Bible yet. And thankfully, the Holy Spirit came through with an answer at the speed of light. And I, I replied to my friend, I said, if your mother is in hell, and I don't know if she is because I don't know her, uh, I don't know where she was with the Lord, but if she could speak to you today, I'm confident she would not want you to be there she'd want you to be with the Lord. Now, I, I lost touch with that, with that guy, and I, I hope he knows the Lord, but I, I share that story just, just as an example of how love for family can have eternal consequences. And it's interesting to me that even Jesus knows that and he includes that in his parable. Now, before we move on, there are a couple of spiritual truths I want to make sure we don't miss from these first six verses. Notice how each of the invitees did not directly reject the invitation to the banquet. They avoided conflict by being dishonest and then making excuses. This is important for us to see 
as we pray for and we share the gospel with our unbelieving friends and family and coworkers, because rarely will they come right out and say, I don't want your Jesus or I don't believe in Jesus. Most of the time, I find they will wrap their rejection of the gospel up in sort of like Christmas wrapping paper. It looks good, but it's really just a bunch of excuses, just like these three people did. It looks better and it sounds better, but if you pull away the wrapping paper, they're still rejecting Christ. And that's one of the points Jesus is trying to make in this story. Neither of the three men said, I will not go to the banquet. In fact, they all RSVP'd. And then when they were called to account for their RSVP, they all gave excuses. Oh, man, I wish I could go, but you know, i got to go take care of my oxen. Or i gotta go, I got to go work my land. Or, you know, I just got married. Wife's not going to let me go. They all had other excuses to blame or to use. None of them said, I don't want to go to the banquet with that master. I don't like that master. None of them said that. Another spiritual truth we need to make sure we don't miss is that this parable is a sobering reminder that surrendering your life to Christ and following him is never convenient. It will never be convenient. There will never be a great time to, okay, now I think I'm ready to stop sinning and follow Jesus. I think I've done all the sin I want to do now. I'm ready to make a change, you know. Or I got my finances in order. I've done everything I wanted to do in life. Now I'm ready to, to go and repent and follow the Lord. No, there's never an ideal time. It's not something you work into your schedule. So that's one of the other hidden truths in this parable is that when the invitation came and the call for the RSVP came, all three men were busy doing other things in their lives that were easily justifiable. And if we didn't know the background story, if we just did a cursory reading, we'd say, oh, that's a, that's a legitimate excuse. You know, hey, the guy's got to make a living. Or, hey, you know, he's got to decorate the new house with the wife. It's a busy time for him. But every individual walking on this earth has to reach a point in their life in which getting right with God and taking care of where they will spend eternity becomes the top priority <laughs> because nobody is promised tomorrow. Nobody is promised 85, 95 years. Nobody knows when the Lord's coming back or when they're going to die and stand before the Lord. So the invitation to heaven is universal, but many who hear it consider it optional and they don't receive it with urgency. Let's read the rest of the story, verses 21 to 24. So the servant came, and he reported these things back to his master. And then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. 
And the servant said, Sir, what you commanded has been done, and there's still room. So the master said to the servant, Well, then go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in, that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. Here's number two on your outline. The many who reject God's invitation will be replaced by the few who accept it. The many who reject God's invitation will be replaced by the few who accept it. Please don't miss in verse 21, the master, remember, that's God in the story, God the Father, the master of the house became angry. The word for angry used in the original text means furious. Since the master represents God, why would God be furious? Well, because just as a jilted host would be angry at the lack of appreciation for the effort and expense that went into a banquet, the Lord takes offense at the lack of appreciation for the effort and expense that went into providing a means of salvation. What did it cost the Lord? It cost him his one and only son, his innocent son, not not one of several sons he had. That's why John 3.16 and other verses are very, very, very precise to make sure we understand his one and only son. And so, in response, the master, who is the Lord, sends the servant out, which in this, in this case is, is Jesus, go out quickly. Notice the urgency again. It's the, it's the same urgency we saw in the parable of the rich fool. Remember when Jesus told the parable of the rich fool, you fool, you do not know today your soul may be required of you, meaning you might die today. Or the, the urgency of the narrow door, where, where Jesus said in the, in the parable of the narrow door uh, that, that, that the door would not be open forever, that the master of that house would close the door. So there's a time urgency to receiving Christ. There's a time. Jesus is saying it in parable of the rich fool, parable of the narrow door, and now this parable of the great banquet. Time will run out. There will be a day in which it is too late. Now, note, the banquet goes on without those who were invited. Notice notice that the master doesn't go, oh, man, I'll postpone. Or, hey, servant, go out and talk to all the people in the community. If you could ask them what time would work for them. No, he doesn't do that. Or, 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 hey, my servant, go out and ask these three guys. Ask them if there's anything I can change about the banquet that would make them want to stop what they're doing and come. If you would, just find out. And I'll see if I can get a consensus going to where maybe I could get them to come. No, no. You see, uh, dear loved ones, it's important to note that Jesus doesn't negotiate. He doesn't placate. He's not pushed around. 
The attitude is pretty much, you don't want to come? Fine. Then don't come. But it's on you. Because you were invited. He's not going to change his plans. He's not going to change his salvation requirements. He's not going to redecorate heaven to please anybody. Because it's his heaven. It's his house. It's his banquet. We're the guest. He's the host. So the many who reject God's invitation will be replaced by the few who accept it. Oh, and one last thing I want to mention When Jesus says the master sent his servant out to get the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame, he is throwing a hand grenade right back to the guest and the host who are at this dinner party because they weren't willing to associate with the poor and the blind and the lame. He is throwing grenades at the Israelites who will not receive Christ, but heard all the prophecies, all the promises about the Messiah, and are rejecting him. And so Jesus is saying, fine. Well, then I'm going to go out to all those people that you aren't willing to associate with, those people, those Gentiles that you consider unclean, who, who didn't hear all the promises. They're not part of God's special selected nation that was groomed from the very beginning of Genesis. Go out and invite them, and they'll come. So he's slapping his audience in the face when he says that. Now, applications. What do we do with this? I have one, and then I have 2A and B. I want to give you a heads up on that so that you can get your spacing figured out on your outline. Uh, Number one, for unbelievers, do not reject the Lord's invitation. If you have not yet made a personal decision to surrender your life to Christ, I want to urge you to stop delaying that. No one is promised or guaranteed tomorrow. Growing up in a Christian family doesn't save you. Voting for a particular party doesn't save you. Living in a certain part of town doesn't save you. Instead, giving your life to Christ is the best decision you will ever make, and rejecting his invitation is the worst one you could ever make. The scriptures teach that God so loved the world that he gave his only son, John 3.16, so that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. The Lord demonstrated his love for you and for I by sending Christ to die on the cross for our sins and then resurrected him again three days later. And those who repent of their sin and choose to follow Christ with their whole hearts can receive forgiveness and peace with him and eternal life and so many other blessings. If you have questions about how to begin a relationship with Christ, I am always available to talk to you after the service. You can interrupt me. I'm probably just talking about football with somebody or or the latest news. Here's number 2A. If you're a believer, if you are a Christ follower, I want to urge you carefully here, don't 
make excuses for those who have rejected the gospel. This is, this is something that I have heard too many believers do that I don't think realize how dangerous it is. They, they might say something like, you know, my daughter has a hard time believing a loving God could send anybody to hell, and that's, that's why she, she hasn't you know, received Christ yet. Or grandpa doesn't come to church or believe in the Lord because he's seen too many hypocrites in the church. Or uh, another hypothetical excuse that, that a believer would make for a loved one is, my, my grandson doesn't believe in Jesus because of all the hurting people in the world. He doesn't understand if you know, God's so loving, why would, why would he allow so much pain in the world? But again, we have to take what we've learned from the parable, the, the spiritual discernment that Jesus embeds in the parable. We've got to take that and we have to apply it to our own family and friends and loved ones and co-workers and neighbors. What's behind the excuses that people give is a, well, when believers do it, they, when they make excuses for people they love who have rejected Christ, believers are actually showing a subtle favoritism at the expense of offending the Lord. You see, what they're doing is they're saying, you know, my son or my daughter or my husband or my grandfather or whatever, you know, the reason he's not a, he's not a believer yet is because of X, Y, Z. What they're really doing is saying it's God's fault. If God would deal with all the hypocrites in the church, then my, my grandfather would be saved. Or if, if God would take away all the hurting and pain in the world caused by our sin, well, then my daughter would be a believer and she'd go to church. That's what they're really saying. And that's dangerous. Instead, what our friends and family need to hear is a clear presentation of the gospel from us. And then our friends, family, coworkers, neighbors, they will be, as Paul says in Romans 1.20, they'll be without excuse. It's between them and the Lord. And look, I have unbelieving family members too. I want them saved, but I'll tell you this, I am not willing, no matter how much I love my unbelieving family members and how I have prayed for them for more than two decades now, I'm not willing to make excuses for them or to change the gospel that Jesus preached and I didn't. I'm not willing to lower his standards to make me feel better or to deceive them. And then me answer to the Lord. To be. Uh, believers live a life that's pleasing to the Lord. You see, one of the other things that's happening here in the text is that the three men don't care about offending the master who invited them. See, that's often overlooked in this text. Something that's very tragic today that's happening in our world is that less and less people care about offending the Lord. And sadly, it's infiltrating the church where now professing believers 
are making offenses, they're, they're becoming super hypersensitive themselves, easily offended, instead of thinking about not offending the Lord. Now, the way to counter this is believers are called to live a life that's pleasing to the Lord. That's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.9. That's why I have that on the keynote screen behind you. Paul says, we make it our aim to please him. And if we're focused on pleasing him, we'll be less likely to be offended ourselves. Well, how do we please him? We, we, we love Jesus by loving his word and living it out. And in rare cases in which the word of God doesn't give us clear direction on what we should do, two good discernment questions to ask are, well, what would please the Lord in this situation? Or what would offend the Lord? And I'm going to make sure I don't do that. So if you profess Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I just want to ask you this question, give you this question to ponder. Do you care more about others offending you, or are you more concerned about something in your life offending God? I just want to encourage you to think about that. Well, Clive Staples Lewis was one of the most influential writers and thinkers of the 20th century. C.S. Lewis is best known for such classics as Mere Christianity, The Screwtape Letters, Chronicles of Narnia. One of his most provocative books that he wrote is called The Great Divorce. It's an allegorical tale about a bus ride from hell to heaven in which he tackles the difficult tension between grace and judgment. In this book, The Great Divorce, Lewis says, as only Lewis could say, quote, there are only two kinds of people in the end, those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says, thy will be done. All that are in hell choose it. They choose it. You see, there are some invitations you just don't turn down, especially the invitation to heaven. Now, although the invitation to heaven is universal, it's sad that many who hear it consider it optional. Would you join me as we close in prayer? Heavenly Father, um, forgive us for maybe avoiding passages of the Bible like this that teach hard truth. There are certainly other parts of the Bible that we could hang out in a lot more that would make us feel better about ourselves, that, that wouldn't challenge our thinking as much and our theology and, or question our salvation. 
but Lord, as, as, as difficult as it is to say, we, we want to thank you for Jesus' brutal honesty because he, he cares for our souls. He, he clearly sets aside sweet talk in order to tell us the truth in love because we need to hear it. Uh, Lord, I just I want to pray for anyone who might be here today or listening online. Maybe, maybe some of these kids that are in the service today who have not yet made the personal decision to surrender their life to Christ. Lord, please, would you, would you work in their heart and would you work in their lives and help them to make that decision? We know they can't do it on their own. You've made that clear in the scriptures. Lord, if there is anybody here today who thinks they're saved but they're not, please would you reveal that so that they don't have a false sense of security. It's, it's sad but true. And Lord, you know it. That Jesus saw it with the Pharisees and it still happens today. There are people who are religious. They like the structure of religion. They like the morals of Christianity. But... Lord, you've made it clear in your word. If there has not been a work of the Spirit to cause them to be born again, to be changed in the heart, then they will not have the benefits of salvation talked about in the Scriptures. So please, Lord, help those who, who might be missing it Father, finally, would you please help us to have the discernment that Jesus did when we pray for our friends and our loved ones, our co-workers, our neighbors, when we pray for their salvation. Please, Lord, help us to, to think biblically, to look behind the excuses that people give for not coming to church when we invite them. Help us, Lord, to to pray biblically for their salvation. We know it pleases you and it will make us more effective witnesses. And finally, finally, Lord, thank you that you even invited us to your banquet. You did not have to do that. We thank you. We're honored that you would do so. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We hope you've enjoyed this Vanguard Bible Church podcast. You can find more sermon messages online at vanguardbible.org. Have a great week, and we hope we'll see you soon.